0: Uh, It's good to be together. We do this as you're getting settled. Pull out your Bible and open to the book of Romans, chapter 9. I want to acknowledge that last Sunday's text and message was very complicated and probably a little bit controversial, but the good news is that the text this morning is even more complicated. (laughs) And so you can look back on last week and say, that was pretty simple pull out your Bible. We're going to start this morning in um, Romans 9 verse 14. Here's what I want you to know. In the winter of 2014, the elders of our church, the then elders of our church, invited me into uh, their meeting where they informed me that they were going to send me to Rwanda. And here's what they said. They said, we... We feel like it'd be good for you to go to Rwanda. We want you to visit our, our partner church there in a town, in a town called Bujisera. We've had a ministry in Rwanda for over a decade with African New Life. And they said, go, encourage Kayumba, the pastor there, learn more about Africa New Life. And they said, plus, we think it would be good for you, Adam, to travel, to get out of the States, see the world a little bit, see what's happening in the global church, and we think this would be good for your preaching. And I said, thank you. It's sort of like a it's sort of like a really subtle way to criticize a pastor's preaching. Send him away for a, a week. But anyway, so I I took off, I went to Rwanda, and honestly, it was one of the great experiences of my life. I learned so much about how God is on the move all across the globe, in so many churches. It's a, it's encouraging to see. I learned that in Rwanda they they worship a little different than we do here. Their worship is more like a house party. There's moments where you're. I guess we're jumping now, and it's amazing, and everyone's doing it. And the preaching in Rwanda is much more dialogical, so it's sort of this constant back and forth where. The pastor will say something, and the church is just encouraging, yes, go, amen. It's very, like, it's, it's amazing. I mean, they're, like, encouraging the pastor from the very beginning. It's, like, open to Romans 9. Hallelujah. Preach it, brother. You know, that's just happening, okay? So we could use a little bit more of that here at our church. Amen? <laughs> Thank you. Good. People come up out on Sunday after Sunday. They're, like, oh, man, I wanted to scream amen so loud, but I didn't want to stand out. And I'm, like, do it. Come on. It was a great experience. Here's the most profound thing that happened, though. The most profound insight that I gleaned in Rwanda was not about the global church. It was about the American church. And what happened to me was that when you're in another country and you see Christianity in another country, by way of contrast, you start to notice things about your own culture, even in the church, And one of the things that I learned is that American culture is uniquely grooming people to have a very strong, distasteful response to the gospel. Because our culture is very subtly grooming people to worship at the twin altars of individualism and exceptionalism. What do I mean by that? exceptionalism. I'm not I'm not making a political statement here. I think America is a great country. What I'm talking about is sort of the, it's an ism. Anytime you get an ism, anytime you're a part of a place that where there's so much good that's happening, it can start to tweak with your own sense of your value or worth. When I was in Rwanda, I was constantly interacting with people who were smarter than me, harder working than me, more creative than me. And I started to realize if I have any influence or any affluence, it has very little to do with me. It's probably more my association with the country that I just happened to be born in. And I realized we're being groomed ever so subtly towards this sort of self- View that's exceptional, and so one of the greatest sins that you can commit in America is to tell someone there's something wrong with them, which is precisely what the gospel does. But individualism was the big one. I mean, in Rwanda, that's it's 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 all about community over the individual. In our country, it's all about the individual over community. We worship at the altar of our own autonomy and individuality. And so sin number one is anything about the gospel that would begin to breach the sovereign borders of my own autonomy and God himself could become a moral monster if he breaches my sovereign autonomy. And so you could understand why, especially if you come to a doctrine like the doctrine of election, this is like sin number one in the American church. We have a love affair with our ultimate self-determination and self-will. And the doctrine of election tends to trigger that love affair. And we react negatively. And what's amazing about the book of Romans is Paul anticipates all this. So in the passage we're going to study this morning, Paul is going to address the two most common objections to the doctrine of election, which we introduced last week. And let me just take a minute and say, how did we get here? So first of all, election, what are we even talking about? The word election in the Bible, it basically, in its most simple form, it means to Choose. It means to select one out of out of a group. Okay, this Tuesday, the citizens of Oregon will choose one person for governor out of a group of amazing candidates for governor. And uh, anyway, that was <laughs> sorry. We will, and what do we call that? We call that an election. It means to pick one out of a group. And the reason we even got to this doctrine is because last week, you remember, when we opened chapter 9, Paul was weeping. Remember this? By the way, if you weren't here last Sunday, this is one of those moments where you're going to have to go back and listen. But last Sunday, when, when Romans 9 opens, Paul is weeping after he's written and, or dictated Romans 8, because he's been talking about the powerful promises of God and how God's promises will never fail, and he's stirred up into this celebration of all the beauty and the joy and the promises of the gospel, except there's one problem. The promises of God have appeared to fail because the vast majority of Paul's kinsmen, the Jewish people, are cut off from Christ. And it looks like God's faithfulness to his original covenant community is, has been breached. And so Paul says, I can't, I can't just go to chapter 12. I gotta write nine through 11, and in order to explain it, I need to notice this pattern in the Old Testament. Remember this pattern where throughout the entire story, God has been electing, he's been narrowing the promises. There's this pattern of a remnant, Jacob over Esau, Isaac over Ishmael. Go back and read it. And Paul says, this is why God's promises are not, they have not failed because what's happening is this pattern has been continuing. And, and Paul's gonna show in a moment how this pattern itself explains why Gentiles are flooding into the church. And by the way, that's what's happened here, right? The vast majority of, of us are not Jewish Christians. We are Gentile Christians by God's grace and mercy. And then Paul says, but now I gotta deal with all of the objections to election. I read a commentary this week where the commentator said, listen to this. The commentator said, Romans 9 cannot possibly mean what it appears to say at face value. We must find an interpretation that is acceptable for us. Now, I'm going to keep my cool, okay? That is not going to be my approach this morning. In fact, while I was praying, all week long, the Spirit of God kept saying, all I want you to do, Adam, is just get up there and let this passage preach itself. Just go verse by verse by verse right to the passage, okay? Okay? So if you like that, this is your day. If you don't like that, I I don't know what to tell you. Come back next Sunday. Thank you. Okay. Here we go. Verse 14. Get ready. You like it now. Wait for 45 minutes from now when you're like, good Lord, I need a cup of coffee. Okay. Here we go. Verse 14. Objection number one. What shall we say then? Is there injustice or unrighteousness? That word could be justice or righteousness. Paul's saying, is is God unrighteous? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul's answer to that is, absolutely not. By no means is God unjust. But where does this objection come from? Paul had learned from experience that every time he taught the doctrine of election, this was one of the first kind of complaints that would be raised. Wait a minute. This does not sound right. This sounds like a breach of basic justice. And so Paul learned to preempt. In fact, Paul's going to, in the passage we're going to look at, he's going to answer questions that you probably haven't even started to ask yet. This is what I love about the Bible. Paul's going to say, I know election's controversial. I know it's a big topic. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk you through even some of the objections you didn't know you had. And one of them is the justice question. But why? What is it about election that sounds like a breach of justice to our human modern sensibilities? And I think it's explained perfectly in verses 11 to 13. Remember this? Paul said, He's he's talking about God's choosing of of Jacob over Esau, the twins. He says, though they were not yet born and they'd done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, there it is, choosing might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And the hearer is going, wait a minute, Paul, what are you talking, are you saying that that before they're even born, before they do anything, God just chooses before any of that. He, he makes this random choice out of thin air which one of the two will benefit from the promises and the blessings and the salvation of being in Christ and which one will not. That sounds like an injustice. By the way, this is sort of a side note. A lot of people... When they're interpreting Romans 9, not a lot. Some people suggest, well, maybe Paul's not talking about individual election. Maybe he's talking about corporate, the election of groups. And for some people, that feels like kind of a way out of this conundrum. What I want to say is, it is true that Paul's talking about people groups as well, because he's talking about Gentiles and Jews eventually. But along the way, he's also very clearly talking about individuals, so it's not necessarily a way out of anything. In fact, the arguments that Paul's going to address, justice and then later, can anyone resist God's will, the people who are arguing with Paul are assuming he's talking about the election of individuals. And so we have to let that be what it is, okay? So how does Paul respond? What about justice? Paul says, okay. Here's the first step in my argument. Verse 15, for, so he's now defending. That's a logic word. For, he says, by no means, it's not injustice. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, that is a very strange argument, folks. Because it doesn't sound like an argument, does it? It sounds like a restatement of the problem. Just look at your Bible. That doesn't sound like an argument. Paul, that's the problem. It seems like it's unjust. You're just randomly choosing. Paul says, it's not. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and and compassion on whom I have compassion. That just sounds like you restated the the problem that I've got. But if we slow down and we think deeply, which is what we do at our church, you're going to realize this is actually an astoundingly brilliant move by the Apostle Paul there's two things I want you to notice. Look at verse 15. First, do you notice that Paul shifts from the category of justice to the category of mercy? That is not an accident. And the second thing I want to say is the quote that from about to Moses comes from Exodus 33 and Paul never quotes anything without a full awareness of the entire context and the context is the key to sealing the argument. So in a minute, I'm going to go back to the context. But first, I want to notice, Paul basically takes back control of the conversation. He says, you want to talk about justice, but God wants you to focus on mercy. You think this is a justice problem, but election has nothing to do with justice. In fact, justice would involve no one receiving mercy so the fact that you hear the doctrine of election and you immediately seem assume this is a justice problem what that does is it reveals a massive problem in your view of the nature of salvation and the true nature of our actual condition as human beings in sin the reality is we don't want justice friends we want mercy. Amen. Thank you. Keep it coming, people. Keep it coming. <laughs> Dialogical. Remember that word. Let me make a couple observations about mercy. Mercy, by its very addition, a definition, cannot ever be an obligation, or it wouldn't be mercy. The reason we call it mercy is because it's not deserved. And the person who's showing the mercy is never obligated to do it in the first place. So to say that mercy is unjust is to say that it's owed to all. But we don't really mean that. Mercy is undeserved. And that means it's totally free. And that's the context of Exodus 33. So I won't make you turn there, but most of you know, actually, the story that's happening in this quote comes from that moment when Moses has come down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and when he gets to the bottom of the mountain, the people of Israel have already turned their backs on God, and they've melted some gold, and remember that moment where Aaron's like, I don't know what happened, Moses, a golden calf popped out of the fire, and we just started worshiping it, okay? Okay. I have been forever ruined this moment. My brother, when I was a kid, he made me watch. He made me watch Mel Brooks's The History of the World Part 1, which is like a slapstick humor-like movie. And in that moment, Moses comes down, and he's got three tablets. And he stands, and he says, you know this one? He says, I present to you the 15, oops, crunch, 10, 10 commandments. Okay? <laughs> But the point of the story is that actually they got one thing right in that moment, which is when Moses got down and he saw the people already worshiping a false idol, he actually, do you know this? What did he do with the 10 commandments? He shattered them and he, and he lived to tell about it, okay? He threw them on the ground. He was so angry at the people of Israel and he knows God has every right to walk away from us as the chosen. I mean, we have breached the covenant over and over and over. Justice would be for God to say, I'm gonna pick a new chosen people. And Moses begs God, please don't do it. And God says, okay, I will relent. And then Moses said, will you guarantee me that you'll go with us? And God, and God says, I will. And then Moses asks for an audacious thing. So now let me read the actual quote. This is Exodus 33. I'll, I'll, I'll start in verse 18. Moses, Moses said, please show me your glory. He said, I, I want to see your glory, God. This is how you'll prove to me that you're going to go with us. Show me your glory. And now here's the quote. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. That's the tetragrammaton. That's the the personal name of God, the Lord. And I now look. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God says, "I'm going to, I'm going to do what you've asked, Moses. I'm going to go with you. But I need you to know something. This is a moment of mercy." not obligation I am absolutely free in this moment to show mercy and I am absolutely free to not show mercy and it's astounding verse 19 uh, no is it verse 19 yeah verse 16 excuse me verse 16 this now so then Paul says so then it depends not on human exertion or will but on God, who has mercy. This is just a restatement of what Paul's already said. Election is, it's not conditional. Over the years, historically, theologians have put the word unconditional in front of the word election, and I think that's probably accurate based on this verse. God's election is unconditional. It's not, it's not a result of our, our will. It's not a result of our morality. It's not a result of our effort. It's purely and totally an act of God's sovereign mercy and grace. And all along the way, as you read the argument, the point is to stir the church up to worship God. I'm going to get to worship at the end. But this is, this is an astounding verse. Now, here's what I want you to know. At this point, things are going pretty well. And this week, as I was studying, I was like, I kind of wish Paul had stopped talking here. You know the phrase, do you know the phrase, quit while you're ahead? I was thinking that, Paul, it's so clean and tidy, nothing controversial yet, but you just had to keep talking, didn't you? You did, but I'm glad he did, and you'll see why in just a minute. Okay, verse 17. For the scripture also says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, That I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. He has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Now that is complicated. We read that and we're like, whoa. Does the Bible say that? The Bible says that. But again, I think if we slow down and we take our time, which is what we do at our church, we'll realize we actually need this teaching. This teaching is critical. Most scholars agree that Paul brings in Pharaoh to the argument as a case study for how God's sovereignty relates to, to human responsibility, because really, that's the big issue. and that's the big justice thing. Wait a minute. How can this be, ju- how can this be right? How can a so- totally sovereign God who's in control of all things, how can that be true? And yet how can human beings have genuine decision-making for which they are responsible? It seems like a paradox and because of our our frail minds and our we have limitations, we can't see how it all works out but what Paul wants to do is he's gonna say those two concepts work together somehow not only in our world but throughout scripture you see it over and over and over. God is absolutely sovereign, yes and you are totally responsible for what you do. And Paul says, let me show you an example with Pharaoh. And he brings up the issue of Pharaoh's hardened heart. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's really interesting. If you go back and you read the Exodus account, and you ask the question, why was Pharaoh's heart hardened? It's a very interesting little study. You could go do it, and I would encourage you to do this study, But how about this? I'm going to make it really easy for you, and I'm just going to show you every verse. I'm going to show up this slide. Why did Pharaoh have a hard heart? Well, it's really interesting. Answer number one is, and it's all throughout the Exodus account, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That shows up over and over and over. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to raise up Pharaoh He's not gonna soften after the first plague, the second plague, the third plague, the fourth plague. He will keep hardening his heart and I will be a part of that. And just boom, boom, boom. But then what's really interesting is Exodus also says even more times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so if you're asked the question, who hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh or God? The answer is yes, that's the answer. That's the answer. And not only that, then God says, and Pharaoh, you are totally responsible for your own sin. Now, how that all works, Christians have been thinking about it. We're never gonna know fully how that all works, except that if we're gonna be true to scripture. It's so interesting, like I've heard really, really, I've heard people on the really extreme side of of the reformed side, the Calvinist side say, There cannot be any such thing as actual free will. And the problem with that is the Bible teaches free will. We have freedom to make choices, and we're responsible for those choices. And I've heard people all the way over on the Arminian side say, because we have free will, God cannot be absolutely sovereign. And the problem with that is the Bible teaches clearly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is absolutely sovereign. Thank you. And that's why we have to, listen, we have to hold this in balance. This is why when I preach the gospel, I tell you, respond to the gospel today. And I'm going to do that at the end of this service. I'm going to share the gospel and I'm going to say, you need to respond. Billy Graham had this amazing an illustration. He said, imagine you're walking up to the gates of heaven. There's a sign on the outside of the gates that says, Enter whosoever will believe. If you believe, come on in. And right as you pass through the gates, you look back at the gates, and there's another sign that said, chosen from before the foundations of the world. And I think that's how it works, somehow. God chose you from before the foundations of the world. It was unconditional. He just decided in his mercy that you would become his child, and you have to respond to the gospel. Paul's primary point with Pharaoh, though, is to say, and this is going to become really clear in just a moment, I'm raising up Pharaoh, though, to draw attention to how merciful I am. I'm raising him up so my people know how powerful I am. And that argument is going to be really critical because Paul, in a moment, Paul's going to say, and that's kind of like what's happening with the people of Israel and with the Gentiles. I'm temporarily hardening the people of Israel we're gonna get there next Sunday. And the reason I'm doing that is to create this cataclysmic, widespread outpouring of my mercy on the Gentiles. The Gentiles will be swept up in my mercy and they will, and they will understand what's happening through the spread of the gospel. This is so profound, folks. We'll get there next Sunday. But first, now there's a, a, there's a second complaint. Look at verse 19. A second complaint. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul actually creates this problem by saying that God pours out mercy on some and he hardens some and, and the reader's going, well, wait a minute. If that's true, can anyone resist God's will? And if I can't resist God's will, then why does he still find fault? And those are really good questions. And you're probably thinking them right now, right? Notice, look at the text. Who can resist his will? Why does he still find fault? Notice what Paul does not do with his argument. He doesn't back away from either of those truths. Isn't this interesting? Paul could have said, oh, don't you actually can resist his will. But the reality is you can't. And so Paul doesn't use that as an argument. But also Paul doesn't say, oh no, don't worry, he actually doesn't find fault. Because that's actually not true. He does find fault. You can't resist his will, and he does find fault. And we're right back to where we were with Pharaoh. Human, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, somehow they hold together. But then Paul says, but let me now let me uh, let me speak to that complaint, that that argument that you're making. And now we come to verses 20 and 21. Look at this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What Paul does here is he asks his own three questions. I'm going to rephrase them for you so you can see what he's doing in his argument. I've got a slide here. Here's the three questions that Paul asks. All three of these questions are about our identity as created beings. Now think about this. What Paul's doing here is he's saying, remember the creator and the creature distinction. This is absolutely critical. So Paul, the first question is whether we know who we are. Because he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And that's so that's the second question what kind of relationship do we think exists between us and God If God is if God is the potter if God is the creator and we are the created we're only here because in God's sovereign mercy he created do we have a right in our relationship with God to question what he's done I don't think that's asked in an intense way. At all. I think it's, it's presented very humbly. Like, do we recognize who we are as creatures? And then the third question is, what kind of attitude towards God do we think is appropriate for this relationship? Like, who are you, Potter, to, to, to create one kind of pot and another kind of pot? And so there's sort of like this ill-formed attitude that we can get and forget. God is the sovereign creator, This is why Paul draws on the metaphor of an artist, of a potter, and there's rich Old Testament history of this potter metaphor, and what I want you to know is that my wife Kathy is an artist, and um, it's been an astounding part of my life to watch her create. Her cancer has really limited her. She can't go to the easel anymore, so... So I, I got her one of these brand new iPods with the stylus and she's actually sitting on the couch and she's doing these amazing things with an I, iPad and then she's making like screen savers for people's phones and stuff. I'm like, you're the most interesting woman in the world. But anyway, she's, and, she, and the, the thing is, Kathy will say, she will say, this is my favorite passage in the entire Bible. She loves this passage. You know what she said to me when I left the house this morning? She was like, don't screw this up. Okay. (laughs) Do not, this is my favorite passage. All right. Don't mess this up. And she is like, she, she loves talking about predestination, college students. You feel me? She loves, she loves talking about predestination election. I like to say, my wife is so reformed. She makes John Calvin look like an Arminian. All right. She's just, she loves it. Okay. But she's an artist. And so what she does is she's like, I get this argument. Because I know what it's like to be at the easel and I'm making decisions about how I want to paint. Like a potter would take a lump of clay and and decide, I'm going to use one part of the lump to do something like this. I'm going to use another part of the lump to do something like this. Kathy just sits there and she takes oil or pastel or whatever she's working with and she makes these artistic decisions And she mixes color in one way. And then what she's doing always is she's trying to figure out, how can I draw the most amount of attention to the part of the painting that I think is going to be the most beautiful or important? Now think about this. She'll say, I want to draw attention to this one tree. How do I make it pop off the canvas? Well, I set behind it contrast. A darkness. This is Paul's argument. Paul's saying, would we actually understand mercy in the absence of a category like wrath? Mercy would make no sense. Mercy makes, it pops when we realize how Scandalously beautiful it is because of the backdrop of what is actually deserved, which is justice and judgment. And so Paul says, "This is God. God is an artist. God is a painter. God is a potter." Look at verses twenty-two and twenty-three. He, I'll prove to you what I just said. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? Look at this. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Why is it that mercy is so beautiful and captivating? Because we know what we actually deserved. It's set against this dark canvas of justice and what, what really should happen which is the wrath of God being poured out on human sin and instead God in his sovereign grace decides I will show mercy to some and that mercy will pop. It's like the warmth of a wood stove is only beautiful when it's snowy and cold outside. Right? Right? A dry sanctuary is only beautiful against the backdrop of an atmospheric river. Amen? Like, thank God for a dry sanctuary, right? Beauty is beauty because we contrast it with ugly. Light is glorious when it's contrasted with darkness. Truth is precious to us when we're surrounded by lies. And mercy captures my heart and makes me want to fall on my knees and worship when I realize that I actually deserve the alternative. And so folks, don't bemoan election. Don't, don't argue about election. Don't debate, don't question God's justice with election. God's saying, I'm taking back the argument, people. This is not about justice, this is about mercy. It's about mercy. I'll illustrate just one. This is one little illustration that might help you. Imagine that you found out that your teenage daughter was a part of a group of her friends. She sort of like walked away, and she's running with the wrong crowd. Nineteen-year-old daughter. It's totally hypothetical, okay? She and you find out my daughter and her friends have a plan to hold up a convenience store and steal liquor, okay? Now you're like, our pastor's totally lost his mind right now. Just go with me. It's an illustration, okay? So you find out, like, they're doing this, and she's out there on her way. Somehow they got a handgun, and they're gonna hold up a liquor store. And you find the group of girls, and you beg, and you plead, please do not do this. But they're, they're hell bent. They're going their way. And so finally, in an act of desperation, you actually run and you tackle your own daughter and you hold her down and you don't let her go. She was going to go. And the other girls go off. They enter a convenience store. Things go wrong. The owner of the store pulls out a gun. He gets shot. He dies. They all get charged. They go to jail. Here's the point of the illustration. Would your daughter say to you, man, I am so glad that I was more noble than my friends, that I did not get involved in such silly business. Your daughter would say, I am not in jail for one reason and one reason only. You literally grabbed me and forced me to stop where I was going. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. The mercy of God, Why are you here right now? Why are you sitting here? Did you choose Did you choose in your life to be the recipient of god 's grace? God chose you folks. He chose you and paul 's going to prove it so now look look i 'm going to just read to you now a few more verses and then we 'll come back next week because now paul 's going to say the whole thing i 'm talking about here is really about. What's going on with the Jewish response to the Messiah and the Gentiles? Okay, so look at verse 24, and I'll, I'll read to the, kind of the end here. He says, even us, so Paul's talked about showing the glory of his grace to the vessels of mercy, and now Paul says, I'm talking about us, Jews and Gentiles. Look at this. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then what Paul does over the next four verses is he just quotes Bible verses that show this was God's plan from the beginning. He had a plan from the beginning to take a people who were not his people and call them, You're my people, these are the Gentiles. So Paul says, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. That's us. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So now Paul says, the whole time I had a plan to harden Israel temporarily so that Gentiles would rush into the churches. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now this is deep. We're at the deep end of the pool, okay? And here's the thing. I'm out of time. I'm going to come back next Sunday, and and then I'm going to talk about the Gentile thing, the Jewish Christian thing. I'm going to talk about what was happening in Rome so you'll need to come back next Sunday to see how the argument continues. But I don't wanna stop there. I, I wanna stop with something that I think is gonna be really practical for you, okay? So you can close your Bible now. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. And what I wanna do now is I wanna say, in our church, I want us to rethink the way that we worship and the way that we pray. I want us to think about this a little more deeply than we do. Okay? And Here's what I mean. I'm, I'm, I'm rooting all of this in what we just read about God's mercy and election. Okay? J.I. Packer said, even though we struggle with election in our heads, every time we worship God, we prove that we believe it. Because when we worship, what do we do? We say, God, thank you that you saved me. I did not save myself, you saved me. And I don't know why you saved me. I hope that's what you're thinking when you worship because that's Christian worship. So every time you worship, even if in your head you're wrestling with election, in your heart you're proving that you already believe it's true. And then J.I. Packer said, not only that, every time you fall on your knees and you pray for your friend or your neighbor or your loved one, that they would come to faith, you prove that you believe God's sovereign in salvation. And think about this. When you pray for your friend, why do you pray to God? Because you know God's the only one that can save them. You don't pray, Lord, I pray that my friend would become so spiritual that she would figure out that Christianity is true among all the worldviews. I hope you don't pray that way. You pray, God, please pour out your mercy on her. Open the eyes of her heart. Soften her heart and heart. Change her affections. Move her will so that she'll see that Jesus is your Messiah. Please, God, you're the only one who can do this. Please. Save her. We debate election on our feet, but we prove that we already believe it when we're on our knees. And that's what I want to ask you to do. I want us to be on our knees, Christians, when we worship. Not not physically, I'm talking about that posture of your heart. Fall to your knees. If you want to fall to your knees today when you're worshiping, do it. It's that total, God, you are sovereign and I thank you for saving me. And please, God, I pray for my spouse, my roommate, my neighbor, my coworker, pour out your mercy. Will you join me in praying for that right now? Heavenly Father, it's with great humility that we end this time in the word. We recognize These are lofty ideas, complex for sure. And yet there's a part of us that understands you have to be sovereign or you would not be God. And so we say thank you. How I pray, Lord, that our church would become a on-our-knees worshiping church. We would worship our guts out. Now, right now, as we sing, may we sing like we've never sung before. May we pray right now to a sovereign, powerful God that you would save. We pray for a revival in our city of people coming to faith in Jesus. And we pray it because we believe you're sovereign in election, Lord, not despite it. And so we love you, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your very precious name, all God's people said,